Please find Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. Hey, is anyone else tired? Yeah, I think it might, I don't know, it might be the heat. I was so hot this morning that I took off my tie before second hour. I'm thinking I might make my pants into cutoffs. But if you're tired, it might just be the sheer pace of life that you're living. Maybe it's just the sheer magnitude of things that even in the summertime, we just pack into our lives. The cool thing right now is that we get to open up the Word of God and see Jesus who is our very life and the one who daily bears our burdens. I want to talk to you today about the kind of life that every believer in Christ ought to live. The kind of life that explains life by the scriptures and exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would a believer be able to do that? Why should a believer live like that? Because first and foremost, you're a child of the king, and and secondly, you represent him in everything. You're an ambassador for Christ. We're looking again today at a sermon that Peter preached, the sermon, the first Christian sermon in the first Christian church, and it reflects a life committed to those things, to explaining the scriptures and exalting Christ. Acts chapter 2 is a huge chapter in the Bible. It's very foundational for the church and for life in God's household. And it has huge significance for our our hearts, our homes, the household of God, and everything we do. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take another run through the passage we looked at last week. We're going to look again at Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. So I want to ask you to stand with me, and I'm going to read those verses once again. And just so you know, I've decided to slow down and take Acts 2 more slowly okay so we're going to look at these 30 verses today as well as next week today we're going to focus on the first two aspects of peter's preaching explaining the scriptures exalting christ next week we will focus on the second uh the the the, the second set and we'll look at that of exposing sin and exhorting to response the other thing we're going to do is come september we're going to take the entire month and take the, a look at the, at the first church, Acts 2, 42 to 47, and we're going to see what they do, what were they about, and we're going to take it slow because this is too foundational to just go on by quickly. It's too crucial to, to the church of Jesus Christ, and it's too crucial to our lives to go quickly through. And so we're going to take it a little bit slower now. And I do believe, as always, as we read the Word, that God has something for us in these verses and specifically about these verses, how we respond to the gospel, how we receive it, and how we give it. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, going all the way to verse 41. This is the word of God. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God raised up And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness. And continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
This is God's word, and let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that you have spoken and your word, and we need your word like we need air. Our souls long for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would use your word by your spirit in our hearts now to change us, to sanctify us, to make us the people you want us to be and point us in the direction you want us to go. We pray in Christ's name, amen. If this isn't the biggest alley-oop in the history of gospel preaching, I don't know what is. As the story of Christ's work continues, Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes... God gets their attention in a huge way. He pours out His Spirit upon His people powerfully. And He gifts them to speak of His mighty deeds in languages they've never learned, the languages of all those present from around the world. It was an amazing time, and God used, that day, God used tongues as a sign to unbelievers. To say something to unbelievers. And people's reactions were mixed. There was, there was perplexity, there was amazement, there was, they were blown away. But some people mocked. Some people ridiculed the sight and sound they were experiencing. They're blaspheming God. Peter stands up. Verse 14 tells us, Peter stood up with the eleven. He took his stand authoritatively and boldly. He is a different man. He's not cowardly or weak or impulsive. Here he is courageous. He is clear. He is strong. He is persuasive. Peter grabs the God-given opportunity that was before him to address the crowds. He preaches the first of 15 sermons found in the book of Acts. Eight of them are his. And God used him to say something life-altering. Now, when I come up here every week... I don't come up here thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open up the Word, and I hope everyone feels entertained. And I hope everyone, you know, gets a good laugh, but gets kind of serious a little bit, and maybe finds a couple things in their life that might, might help them as they go through the week. When I come up here, and when I pray, and, and, and read the Word, and, and study the Word all week, and, and get ready to stand up here before you, I don't do it thinking, well... Nothing's really going to happen. I come up here thinking that God is going to alter your life. I come up here praying that God will alter my life and that God will alter your life and that he will do something that you couldn't plan. That you couldn't, you couldn't put on the agenda and say, well, today I'm going to you know, go to church and get saved today or I'm going to go to church and, and get more sanctified or I'm going to throw away a sin in my life that, that's really been bugging me and you just kind of plan it out. But that God would surprise you in such a way that he would alter your life. That's why I'm up here. He uses someone who's imperfect and weak and, and sinful and and wielding the perfect, infallible, inerrant Word of God, the eternal Word, and the Holy Spirit does something when God's people gather around the Word. So I'm hoping and praying for life-altering change today. The last time what we did is we, we did a basic overview of these 30 verses, and we saw the elements of Peter's Pentecostal preaching. He preaches, preaches a very powerful sermon 
He explains the coming of the Holy Spirit. He exalts Christ. And in the process, God exposes the people's sins. And then Peter exhorts them to repent. And it becomes the pattern for the apostolic preaching and the pattern for ours. And not just in settings like this where people gather and, and someone stands up in front, but in your, in your own heart, preaching the gospel to yourself, in your own home, preaching the gospel to your household, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, at school, on the sports field, in the supermarket, wherever you take an opportunity to preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Don't limit it just to being up front, though, though uh, I said this last week, Christians are the only group that continues to gather together every week and open up the word of God and preach the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And God is pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save. When we're preaching the gospel, we should explain the word of God. We should exalt Christ. Sin should be exposed. I don't think you can be exposed to the word of God and the gospel and not hear that sin has separated man from God and that we are in need of mercy. We are under the wrath of God. And if, if, if we don't avail ourselves of the shed blood, the substitutionary shed blood of Christ in our place, on our behalf, then we are lost forever. I don't think you can open up the word of God and say you're preaching the word of God and not have people's sins exposed. Now, it's not like we're pointing around and going, I know what you did last summer, right? Uh, most sins are hidden. They're in the heart. They do come out in the life. Some people's sins go before them. Others follow after. But sin is exposed when the word is explained and Jesus is exalted. And also, a response should be exhorted. I came up and grew up in the era of walk the aisle Christianity, and some people think there hasn't been preaching unless there's an invitation to walk the aisle. I would say there is, there's, no, there's not been preaching if you haven't asked for some sort of response. You can walk the aisle and get saved or, or commit your life to the Lord more fully. You can crawl down on your hands and knees and beg God for mercy. Or you can cry out in your own heart and say, God, I need you. I've made a shambles of my life and I need you more than anything. You should always respond to the word of God. You always do respond to the word of God, whether you walk away and just like someone who looked at their face in a mirror and forgot what they saw, or you become a doer of the word. So explain, exalt, expose, exhort. We're going to look at explaining the word and, and exalting Christ today. And then I'm going to make some, some applicational comments, some, some implications and, and observations off these texts. Why should, by the way, should we explain the scriptures and exalt Christ? Why should we do that? See, if we don't explain the scripture and exalt Christ, we will focus on our own words and exalt ourselves. The, the secular, humanistic culture in, in which is, is the unbelieving world is doing that all the time. They're doing that as I speak. They are highlighting man's word and focusing on man's efforts. That's, that's the water we're swimming in. That's the air we're breathing, and we need the word of God to counteract that, so we should explain the scriptures and how the scriptures explain life, and we should exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk first about explaining Scripture. I want to explain the prophecies in greater detail. And we could say, why explain the prophecies? Peter already did. 
But they had insider information. They were closer to the source. And we do need a bit of understanding of what is going on here as Peter is quoting Joel. Peter is preaching as one of his texts, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. This is Peter's Pentecostal preaching. He is explaining Pentecost. What's going on with this? What is happening when Joel is saying the words he says? And if you want to see what Joel said, just look at verses 17 to verse 21. And that's the quote of Joel 2, 28 through 32. In the last days it shall be, God declares. And he's going to pour out the Spirit. People are going to dream dreams and and prophesy. And there's going to be signs and wonders. And what is Joel talking about? Peter makes it clear. He's talking about what God's going to do in the last days. What were the prophets doing? What was Joel and the other prophets doing? They were prophesying. They were telling ahead of time what was going to happen in the last days. Peter is using this prophecy to announce that those days, the last days, have arrived. We're living in the last days, people. That's what he's saying. They began with Christ coming back to earth, his first advent. They will end when he comes back, his second advent. Everything between Bethlehem and glory, Christ coming back in glory, is the last days. So they were living in the last days, we're living in the last days. Peter said, in fact, I loved preaching 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1.10 says that the prophets who foretold the grace that was to come made careful search and inquiry inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And and it was awesome that they were doing that. They were always asking questions, always wondering, what does God mean? Who is he talking about? What's going on as the Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets? The prophets are inquiring and they're asking, who's this about? The apostles didn't need to do that. The apostles clearly knew. They didn't need to search and inquire they were now proclaiming it's jesus it's jesus that the prophets were talking about they didn't need to keep searching and inquiring they knew for certain that the person who was being pointed out the one who was being spoken of is jesus joel in his prophecy is announcing the coming of the day of the lord code for judgment where God would act in righteousness and mercy. Joel's prophecy is a call to repentance in hope of receiving God's forgiveness. And Peter's preaching mirrors Joel's because Peter is preaching about a day when the Lord will act in righteousness and show mercy. And it happened at the cross, but he shows the whole breadth of God's redemptive plan and work in Christ and and, and said this is the last days from Bethlehem to when he returns in glory so Peter's preaching was a similar message it mirrored Joel's the outpouring of the spirit would happen upon all flesh that Jews and Gentiles would come to faith in Christ as the gospel is preached this is the beginning of the fulfillment they were living in the last days and we are living in the last days 1 Peter 2 says that Jesus was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but in these last days has been manifested to us. 1 John 2.18 says, Little children, it is the last time. It's the last days. 
Hebrews 9.26. But now, at once at the end of the ages, Christ has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Joel is talking about wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, sun being turned to darkness, moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. There's the code for judgment, the great and magnificent day. Now, six or seven weeks earlier, the people in Jerusalem had seen the sun turn to darkness in the middle of the day, the day that Christ was crucified. And all these things, though, haven't happened yet, but they all will happen. They're angling all to the return of Christ. Believers believe this about the return of Christ, that we believe in the personal, bodily, promised, imminent, visible return of Christ to judge unbelievers, to bless believers, and set up his kingdom. We're hoping in that. But everything that Joel says hasn't happened yet, but it all will happen. Some of those things haven't happened yet, but the whole passage is included to show the depth and breadth of Christ's redeeming work, and it also is shown to get to the last part. Look at verse 21, quoting Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter had to get to that. And here's the deal. It was going to happen right then. These people didn't wake up that day and said, you know, I'm going to go to the public square and listen to a sermon that Peter's going to preach and maybe I'll get saved. It wasn't planned by man. God planned this day. And 1 Peter 4, 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. But they were living at that point in the last days as we are today if you're a believer today here's what God here's how God wants you to live you want to know how you should live I got the answer for you it's right from this passage you should live like every believer since Pentecost live like you're living the last day live as if Christ could return in a moment that's how we're to live you know what that's going to do, by the way. It's going to help. God's going to use that to clean up your life. Because you're going to not do things that you were doing because you're like, ah, I don't know when Christ is going to return. I'm just going to do this anyway. You're going to want to please God. You're going to want to not, not displease God. And you're going, to, you're going to live as if Christ is coming in the next moment. What kind of urgency might we live with? What kind of intensity? What kind of, what kind of clarity would that give life? What kind of humility would that bring in us? What kind of gentleness would that show? It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You call on God for mercy, for forgiveness. Based on the shed blood of Christ, you will be saved. Peter makes it very clear. This is all about Jesus. It's all about his work. And he's referring to this text in Joel because it was the clearest and most obvious Old Testament prophecy of the pouring out of the Spirit of God. But then what he does, and he does this with great clarity and urgency and power, he links what everyone in Jerusalem had been seeing and hearing and tells them this is a clear proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard it in your own language. Now Peter stands up in a common language and and preaches the gospel. He is explaining with Joel what was happening that day and he preaches 
Christ. He exalts Jesus Christ. That's why we're looking at him explaining the scriptures, and in the same context, he is exalting Christ. He highlights Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And for us, we might say, well, these are really, you know, just kind of, what do you do, pick these out of a hat? These are kind of obscure passages, but they weren't obscure to the first Christians. In fact, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11 is a passage that was very important to early Christian preachers. Paul even preached this passage at least on one occasion, recorded in Acts 13.35. But what this is, is a review of what everyone knew of the ministry of Jesus, and it explained on the basis of this great text, Psalm 16.8-11. So look at Acts 2, verse 25. He says, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. And what he's saying, what he's saying is that while it was written by David, and while the statement uh, contains some things quite literally referring to David, it is really about Jesus. It's really about Jesus. He's saying salvation is here. He says, men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words. He's he's basically telling them, I want you to listen up and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Jesus of Nazareth died and was raised from the dead. Now he died because God planned it and also because you did it. And it's the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that brought it about. By the way, If his death was ordained by God, so was his resurrection and glory. Let that comfort you. Verse 24, God raised him up. He loosed the pangs of death. What do you think about that? Loosing the pangs of death. Like the jaws of life came out. Boom. Because it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death. You know why that's good news for you and me today? Because if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, death cannot hold you. The pangs of death have been loosed. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not possible, if you're a believer, for death to hold you in its grasp. Jesus said, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he asked the people, do you believe it? Do you believe it? You must. Peter goes on, verse 29. Hey, David died, everybody. Hey, everybody, David's in a grave. Hey, everybody, we can walk into a field trip and see it if you want. But you gotta know that he's talking about someone else. In fact, verse 31 says, he foresaw, he foresaw, because he's a prophet, he foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of the Christ. That he wasn't abandoned to Hades. That his flesh didn't see corruption. And verse 32. This Jesus. It's getting really specific here. Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus God raised up. Raised him from the dead. And he says of that we are all witnesses. Who are the witnesses? It's Peter and the eleven. The apostles. They're witnesses of the resurrection. That's why they're apostles. And then verse 33, he's exalted at the right hand of God. Here's his present ministry. He received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So what did he do? He turned around and poured it out on you, people. 
poured it out. And then Peter goes even more obscure to those who wouldn't have known this. He goes to Psalm 110, verse 1. And he focuses on his, his ministry and his return. He says in verse 34, David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. You know what that does? That tells me that there's, there's a Lord talking to a Lord. What's going on? Well, that's very important. Uh, Psalm 110, by the way, was also a very popular text with early Christian preachers. It was the most quoted, it, it is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Some 25 or 30 times it's either quoted or alluded to. Hebrews uses it the most. And it's very easy to see why this verse is so important. You've got to look at those two words, Lord and Lord. Two different Hebrew words. The first Hebrew word is Jehovah, which, stand, which basically is signifying the one true God. The second Hebrew word for Lord is Adonai, which refers to an individual that's greater than the speaker. David very clearly is speaking about Jesus. God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's all in support of the explicit gospel message that Peter lays out so clearly. And and the way he puts it is, is this. Jesus, who is the Holy One, was killed by God's preordained decree, and but you put him to death. So God is righteous, you're sinful, but Christ is the Savior. God has made him both Lord and Christ. God raised him from the dead. And when he gets to the end and they ask what they should do, he says, repent. And I mentioned last week that repentance and belief always go together. Repentance and faith always go together in the Bible. There's no faith without repentance. There's no repentance without faith. The predetermined plan of God brought it about. They were guilty. There's massive practicality for your worship of God and your your beliefs about God and your life in Christ. There's massive practicality for your doxology, your theology, and your biography. The apostolic preaching is so foundational. There are elements in it that should be in our preaching. All of the apostolic preaching, what did they do? They all centered on Christ. They, they, they said prophecy was fulfilled in Christ, and they pointed it out. They said Jesus is God, the deity of Christ. They pointed out the life and the work of Christ. Here's what he did on the cross. And, and they point out the second coming of Christ. And they point out the fact that no one can get saved apart from Jesus. You know, it's easy for people to, to say, hey, I just preached the gospel. What did you say to them? Well, I said that Jesus loves them. Well, I said that they should believe. Well, you've got to give me a little more than that. Can we get a little more specific? How about this? The Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah are fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus is God. And he lived and he, and he died He died for our sins in our place. He shed our blood, shed his blood for us. Sorry about that. And the second coming is coming. He's coming again in judgment and and in blessing. And you cannot get saved apart from faith 
in the finished work of Christ. Well, hopefully they would say, well, tell me more. Tell me more. Why would I need all this? Well, because you've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Well, because you're lost without Jesus. And as Acts 4.12 tells us, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. A lot of Christians have bought into the idea that maybe there's life on Pluto and maybe there's some other way to be saved. Don't tell me there's life on Pluto and don't tell me there's any other way to be saved. Don't tell me there's Martians, you know, looking for us and don't tell me that, you know, well, you know, Jesus is good for some people but not for others. There is one Savior. One Savior. Why would you want to even hold an opinion that tells me that Jesus isn't the only Savior? This is the perfect pattern of preaching, by the way. You center it on Jesus. You talk about how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. You talk about the deity of Christ, the life and work of Christ, the second coming of Christ, salvation in Christ alone. And yeah, Peter was fired up, wasn't he? We fall asleep. We're like, oh, we're bored with that message. Entertain me, wow me. What could be more inspiring to your soul than to know that God has done what you could never do so that you can have life eternally with God, not separated from him? Why should you explain the scriptures and exalt Christ? Because if you don't, you're gonna major on your words in your life I've been thinking so much about this in terms of application and, and, and what this means for our lives and, and about Peter preaching to thousands of people but what it means for our life in our own hearts in our own households on our blocks in our neighborhoods in this community as a church Grace Church of Orange and, and, to the, and really to the ends of the earth We've got a lot of ministry partners that are serving to the ends of the earth and, and many people going from this congregation. What does this mean for us? How should this change the way we live? How should our, our own heart's meditation change as a result of, of, of what Peter is preaching here? How should, our, how should our household be affected? How should your work be different? How, how should your your citizenship how should your small group be be blown away how should our fellowship be as a result we're going to live our life for jesus and the gospel what does this mean for it i think this is absolutely foundational because i think we've seen peter's model of preaching this idea of exalting christ and explaining the scriptures it should affect the sharing of the gospel and our daily lives in huge ways. Why is this good news? Why is this good news? I'll tell you why. Because hell is worse than anything. Hell is worse than anything. And if hell is worse than anything, and if you're a Christian, and you've been saved from hell, then anything that you endure in your life is better than hell. Even if you say, well, you know what? I'm living, I'm living, I'm living in a living hell. No, you're not. Because hell's worse than that. Well, it's pretty bad. Well, it's better than hell. You could tell, you comfort each other with these words. Hey, how you doing today? Oh, horrible. Better than hell. <laughs> Why is this good news? Because, because this has everything to do with where our hearts are with God. 
This has everything to do with where our hearts are with God. That our, if our hearts have been and lives have been transformed by the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, then we're going to live differently from the inside out. We're going to live differently from the inside out. Let me bring up some, some observations and applications and implications as a result of this. I'm first about explaining the word. Explaining the word. If you want to explain the word of God, newsflash, you've got to know the word of God. Everybody thinks they know the word of God, and most people I know, including me, don't really know the word of God. What do you mean by that? I've read the Bible over and over again a bunch of different times. I don't know the word of God by heart. I haven't got the whole Bible memorized. I don't have the whole thing wired. I don't remember. There are things I learned in seminary 30-some years ago that I have forgotten. I've got to be reminded. I've got to relearn. You need an unswerving dedication and commitment to know and, and then give the scriptures. And, and our mem- think about it. Our memory bank gets kind of full and we got a lot of things in life and we're weary and we're tired and, and we're worn out and we're bringing in the word of God and we're forgetting things that we memorized and sometimes it comes back to us but we've got to keep taking it in because how many times have I told you we leak? Think about the way that Peter was affected by the word of God. That's how God's word should govern our life that it's so influential and pervasive that you're influenced by it at every turn. Now Peter was not 100% consistent with that. There were times he had to be corrected because he's a sinful man. But when I think of Peter, I think of that he was pickled in the word of God. Like everything was just, just fully infused like garlic. You know I like garlic and, and like, I like this pervasive flavor. You should be Bible flavored. What's the result of being immersed in the word? Well, Deuteronomy 6, a lot of people quote that and they go, well, we're going to look for teachable moments. That's not what this is about. Deuteronomy 6, these commandments I give you are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads and write them on the doorposts of your house. Oh, and on your gates. So we're not just talking teachable moments here. We're talking on your heart, influencing every action, every decision you make. You press them on your children. That means you're reading the Bible to your kids and you're memorizing it with them and you're explaining it to them. Yes, you are indoctrinating your kids in the word of God. Absolutely. It's the best thing you can do. And you talk about them. It's on your lips because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Most Christians use scripture like seasoning. Just a little bit. Not too much. Sparingly, small doses. Newsflash, it's not poison. Okay? You can take as much of the Bible as you want and you won't die. It is life-giving medicine for your soul. It's oxygen, it is water, it is air for your soul. And it's not supplemental, it's absolutely essential. And, and I know that all of us have all these hobbies that we love to engage in, but how about the Word of God? You know, I'm kind of tired of being asked, what's your favorite book besides the Bible? I got thousands of books. I read tons of books. But this is the book. And yeah, if I could only bring one book with me, uh, duh, it's this one. Okay, there's no other book. There's no other book. This is the word of God. Um, God's word is not just seasoning. It, it's the main course. It's everything. It's the revelation of his will that should govern everything in your life. 
You know what happens when you really get into the Word of God? Our elder, we were talking about this at our elder meeting the other night. Uh, Dr. Horner and his Bible study method, he talks about that a lot of Christians starve themselves from the Word of God. When you actually get into the Word of God, you realize you've been starving for the Word of God. You take little hors d'oeuvres and little snippets and verse of the day, not going to cut it. That is not going to cut it. That will be too little, too late. But most, most people I know are not Bible gluttons. They're not hogs on the Bible. They're not, they're not gorging themselves on the Word. They're starving themselves, and they don't realize it. They think, no, I, I, I've been in all these Bible studies, and I'm in all these groups and stuff. You know, I mean, you know how, much, how little Bible is in some of these groups? Let's be honest with ourselves. We call, Bible, we call messing around sessions Bible studies sometimes. Talk about everything else but the Bible. I've had, I've had, I've had uh, uh, waiters in restaurants tell me, hey, your group actually opens their Bibles <laughs> when you're here. All these other people, they have their Bibles sitting next to them, but they don't open their Bibles. There's nothing good and great about us, but I think, I think some Christians are allergic to the Bible. By the way, they're acting. It's like, oh, I don't want too much. Don't give me too much. Just little, pe- little bits and pieces. Here's what happens. Your stomach for the word shrinks. And you think you've had a full meal as you get less and less, and you want the cliff notes. You know, you, know how, you know how dangerous your study Bible is for you? You read the bottom of the page instead of the top. What, some guy in Chicago wrote that. Chicago's great, but he ain't God. God's word is God's word, and it shouldn't be mixed. I love study Bibles, but can we put the notes somewhere else? It, it, just, it just drives me crazy sometimes. But guess what? When you start reading or listening to whole books of the Bible and, and whole, whole chapters and, 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 and read the whole thing and just keep going, well, where do, you, where do you see what God will do? You'll see that you were starved. I was talking to a college cross-country coach once and he said, all my recruits are iron deficient. Like all of them. I just tell them, as soon as I recruit them, start taking iron supplements. You're going to be amazed at how much energy you have. Well, most Christians I know are Bible deficient. Bible deficient. You can't go on fumes. You got to know it. You got to receive it. You got to consume it. You got to consume it. You got to bring the book to yourself and to your family and to your neighbors and relatives and friends and not be afraid. And it's not easy work. It's not, it's not sipping lemonade, sitting in a hammock in the backyard. This is digging for gold. This is coal mining. Fathers, you need to read your word to your kids at home on a daily basis. On a daily basis. So many men tell me, oh, I don't know the Bible well enough to teach my kids. Well, learn it. Learn it. I want to be that kind of church. I want to be that kind of man. I want to preach like this, and I want us to all live like this. I think we should be Bible specialists. Not to think we know all these things, but so that we would know God. You, you get to know the Word so you, get to, so you can, can know God. That's why you immerse yourself in the Word. It changes you. It changes your outlook, your attitude, your opinions, your actions. If you have an ongoing bad attitude, you need huge doses of the Word given by the Holy Spirit into your life. Nobody here has a bad attitude, so it's a good. But those people you know. <laughs> Let me say something else about, um, about uh, explaining the scriptures. Once you get it, you got some of it, good. Boldly take action upon what you know. Boldly take action. Get the message out any way you can. Billboard it. Do something. 
Don't just talk about it. We are big talkers, little doers. We love to talk about Bible study and the word and prayer and fellowship and witnessing, but we don't do those things so much. We love to talk about it. And we think if we talked about it, then we've done it. Did anybody mentor you into that kind of life? If not, find someone to mentor you in that kind of life. Uh, let Jesus mentor you into that kind of life where you examine the scriptures and explain them and, and, and actually get the message out boldly. And I gotta say, and, um, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up that this passage screams loud and clear to me and you about the priority of preaching the word of God. And not just in settings like this, but again, in your heart, in your home, and in the household of God, and all through the ends of the earth. Don't ever underestimate the power and the priority of preaching the word of God. Preaching has always been bashed. It is God's plan to save those who will believe through the foolishness of the message preached. Do you know in the sermon that we're looking at, these 30 verses that we're looking at, roughly half the verses are from the Old Testament and half of them are explaining and then two are applying. That's a good model for preaching. You look through the whole book of Acts and you have got preaching, 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 and preaching. And they're going everywhere, into towns and villages and preaching. They're going one-on-one. They're going in groups. They're proclaiming. They're announcing a proclamation. Greek is keruso. It's the, the kerygma was the body of proclamation, the apostolic preaching. And along with that was the didache, the teaching, the doctrine. Preaching and teaching go together. If you're preaching, you're teaching. If you're teaching, you're preaching. Now, Peter had direct inspiration by the Holy Spirit for every word. We've got the indwelling Holy Spirit, so we go in God's authority with his word. That's what we do. Peter opened his mouth. He lifted his voice. He said, listen to my words. I mean, he ramped it up. He says, thus says the Lord. He's not giving opinions and options for them. He is telling them, this is what God says. There is authority to it. You've got to listen to it. You've got to be convicted of it because it's about Jesus and you crucified Jesus. And, and by the way, he was compassionate too because he said, repent. We'll look at that next week. Peter created this hunger. He says, I'm going to tell you what's going on. One more thing about, about uh, explaining the word. If you're going to do this, you've got to unite with fellow believers that are like-minded. You cannot just do this alone. Peter stood up with the 11. Remember, this was not a solo deal. This was not a one-man operation. It was not a one-man show. It was a collaborative effort. That is the unified uh, sense of gospel preaching. Some people are happy to believe lies. When I was a brand new believer, I had people in positions of religious authority that I one time respected tell me Jesus isn't God. I had people tell me the Bible isn't true. I had people tell me you'll get over your enthusiasm for Jesus and reading the Bible. And it made me stronger. Those were lies. I certainly wasn't alone. I had other people speaking into my life, mentors and family and friends that were, that were showing me the gospel truth on a daily basis. And, so I, and I was in the word, so I knew the error when I heard it. True believers reject lies. They, they cling to the truth. And, and, it, and if it doesn't kill you, the opposition to it will make you stronger. It will make you stronger. You gotta roll with those who wanna roll. Don't worry about the naysayers who say, hey, don't go out preaching the gospel like that. That style doesn't work. You know, the gospel preaching that works is gospel preaching. 
get the gospel out get together with co-belligerents get together with with kindred spirits go to orange and tustin and anaheim and westminster and costa mesa and irvine and yorba linda and fullerton and if i didn't name your city go to your city go to riverside go to go to wherever you want to go and preach the gospel and my friend ed lewis i was talking to him and he told me how he got urban hope started in philadelphia and he says he was always trying to get people who didn't want to move to get out of their comfort zone and he was trying to convince people who didn't want to move to move so he changed his course he changed his perspective he said i was always feeling like i was trying to push a boulder uphill because then i said i'm just going to roll the rock roll with the rocks i'm going to roll rocks that, that are willing to roll stop pushing boulders up hills go with the people who want to go and preach the gospel and you be a person with a passion for people in a place and preach the gospel no matter how old you are do you know that there is no age limit on this you don't graduate out of it you don't you don't uh, qualify for it by being a certain age i don't care how young you are how old you are take the gospel of the grace of god in christ and preach it do it in your own heart do it in your own home do it to people we should long to see cities um united around the gospel transformed dramatically by the gospel message yes it can happen live people movements to christ it's why we exist just this week in orange five people came to faith in christ we threw a party in a neighborhood and angels were throwing a party in heaven people come to faith in christ when you preach the gospel and 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 when you preach the gospel people who know christ align themselves with christ okay we're 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 we're, we're pretty much done give me two more minutes okay worship team you might want to inch up here okay if any of you are still here if not i will sing a song at the end okay (laughs) be pretty cool i bet you let's talk one thing about exalting christ one thing about exalting christ keep your focus on jesus keep your mind fixed on jesus my attitude stinks a lot of the time does yours my outlook warps my response goes inward and i focus on myself and it probably happens to you as well just the other day i was at a store that a friend of mine works at and he ran up to me and he said man i'm really sorry for my attitude the last time i saw you and I'm sitting there thinking, I don't remember. But then I remembered. He was complaining about all these people that had messed his life up. And he says, I'm really sorry that I had such a bad attitude. He was basically just unloading, and I was receiving. I was okay. I was bearing his burden. But then he says, he gets, he says to me, he goes, that's why Jesus died for us, right? I said, amen. I need his grace and his mercy every single day. His grace and his mercy make your life beautiful. I tell you what, Um, this is the kind of life we can have the kind of life that explains life by the scriptures and exalts Jesus because we're children of the king and because we first and foremost represent him therefore we cherish Christ in our hearts cherish him Lord God thank you that we can not be troubled but sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that is in us with gentleness and reverence Lord Jesus, we want you to have first place in everything in our lives. You are the preeminent king. And Lord, the kind of life that Peter preached, the kind of life that Peter lived, we want that, Lord. We want that. And thank you, Lord, that you can bring that about. We acknowledge, Jesus, that you are God and that we need you. The shed blood of Christ is our perfect, perfect hope. And thank you, Lord, that you speak to us every day from your word. We thank you that we are living in the last days. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.